Good morning. Good morning. Um, It's really good to see all of you here. A special welcome to our visitors. Um, We are so thrilled that you are taking the time to come up to the mountain and spend some time with us. Um, My name is Stephanie Formenti, and I serve with our chaplain in the chapel department. Um, I am the chapel associate for discipleship, and that means I get to focus specifically on discipling and mentoring our women students, Um, but occasionally they let me up here too, which is kind of fun to teach. Um, Typically, our chapel is full of students. This is a very different year, and we've had to make adjustments. Um, We usually have a lot of students in here. We usually get to sing together and worship. Um, So it's been a a year of adjustments for us, but you know, we're still thankful that we get together, that we get to stop in the middle of our day, come together, refocus, and hear from God's Word. So we're going to do that today, even though things are really different. Um, You know, in an unusual year, I would say that this week has been significantly unusual for us. Um, One that will probably go down in history After months of tumult in our country, Americans went to the polls and voted. And I think many things contributed to the candidate that people chose, regardless of your party, but I'm going to guess that there was one common theme that sort of undergirded their choices, this idea of the good life. I would argue that consciously or subconsciously, we were inspired to vote for the candidate that we thought would help us experience the good life or the blessed life. Which brings me to my question for us this morning. What is the good life? What is the blessed life? How would you answer that question? If we stop and just look around us for a second, we will see that our culture actually has a lot to say about what the good life is. Just consider for a second the commercials or ad banners that pop up on your social media. What do they display? Travel? Financial security, cute clothes, new shoes, happy kids, yummy food, freedom. If you could just get one more degree, reach one more fitness goal, or get a certain number of followers on Instagram, then you'd be living the good life. So out of curiosity, I googled the good life. And one definition I found put it this way. The good life, in its most simple form, is a series of never-ending satisfaction that only grows more powerful as time goes on. It then went on to provide several simple ways to live the good life. Slow down, be self-sufficient, forget perfectionism, find satisfaction, laugh a lot, pursue your goals. These narratives are defining for us what the blessed life looks like. The voices swirling around us are really loud. And sometimes it is hard for us to step back and develop a theology around the good life. So we are going to spend our time this morning in Psalm chapter 1. Because the question that Psalm 1 is answering for us is this. What is the good life? What is the blessed life? So if you have your Bibles and you want to join me, I'm going to read from Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. 
The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So only six little verses, but they sure do pack a punch. Without wasting any time, the author of the Psalms, the psalmist, sets up two ways to live, like the blessed man or like the wicked. Verses one through three articulate the life of the blessed or the truly happy person, and verses four through six describe the life and the outcome of the wicked. Right away, the contrast is set up for us, and it tells us that the blessed life or the good life is marked by three things. Joining with the righteous, delighting in the law of the Lord, and prospering. So we're going to look at those three really quickly. So in verse 1, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And there are three different and coinciding progressions in these verses, just to look at really quick. So first, the verbs go from walk to stand to sit. This progression seems to indicate degrees of intimacy or commitment. And then we see a similar pattern in the nouns, wicked, sinners, and scoffers. And while wicked and sinners basically mean the same thing, Proverbs, another book in wisdom literature, uses this idea of scoffers as people who are completely turned away from God, completely unrepentant and hardened. Thirdly, the ideas of counsel and way and seat give us insight too. It's talking about what we think and what we do and where we belong or where we find our belonging. So the happy person then, or the blessed person, is the one who does not entertain the advice of the wicked, the one who is not informed by those who are contrary to God. This progression is convicting if we stop and think about it for a second, because it's true that sin often works that way in our life, isn't it? That's why this description is so helpful. It's almost like window shopping, which maybe we haven't been doing a lot of recently. (laughs) We've been doing online window shopping. Um, But first, you know, it's the idea of you're just browsing and you just sort of walk by the window, give it a quick glance, but then something catches your eye and so you stand there for a second and look at it a little bit harder. And then you start to evaluate, do I need this? Do I want this? Do I want to spend my money this way? And then when you go in to the store, it's all over. You buy it. I think sin kind of works this way in our life. So often we flirt with sin. We sort of walk by and give it a glance. And then we stop walking long enough and pause. And then sometimes we go all in. Is this progression in play in our lives at all in the ways that, in the things that we think about and what we do or where we find our belonging, our counsel, our ways, our seat? Are there places where we play with sin, dangerously giving space for that process to begin? Are we maybe already standing at the window or maybe even sitting down and making ourselves comfortable? This passage is telling us that we can't have both. You can't have the good life, the blessed life, if we walk, stand, or sit with those who reject God's instruction. The good life is marked by joining with the righteous and giving no room for sin in our lives. So secondly then, the blessed life or the good life is the one which finds delight in the law of the Lord, which begs two questions. What exactly is the law? And how in the world can we find delight in that? The Hebrew word for here, for law, is Torah, and that specifically refers to the law of Moses, or what we know is like the Ten Commandments. But we know from the New Testament that Jesus expands that, right? And he summarizes the law by saying, first law is love the Lord your God, 
And then the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. And he says that it doesn't contradict the Ten Commandments, it actually summarizes them. So the first, ten command, the first of the Ten Commandments talk about our relationship with God. Do not have any idols, do not take his name in vain, remember the Sabbath. And then the second section of the Ten Commandments focuses on our relationship with our neighbor. Do not steal, do not covet, do not lie, do not murder, right? So that's the law, and how does that work in our lives, and how can we actually delight in it? And it was helpful for me as I was thinking about this, to think of the law of God as kind of like a set of family rules or family code. <clears throat> it's a series of habits or behaviors that help a household to run smoothly. Galatians 2.16 reminds us that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So while the Christian is free from the law as a system of salvation, we are still under the law of Christ. But this family code brings life. In January, right before COVID hit, we got a puppy. Um, and this puppy was an answer to many, many years of prayer from our kids. We have three children. They wanted a dog really since the time they knew what a dog was. And it was just never the right time until this January. And so we got a sweet, fluffy, energetic little golden doodle, and we named him Whitaker. And Whit is so sweet, and he's, he loves our kids, and he loves being around people, and we love him. We give him his food, and we give him toys, and we play with him, and we take him in the car with us. But he's still a puppy. And if any of you have had a puppy, you know what I mean. He comes with typical puppy behavior. So what that means is he has destroyed five TV controls, five. He has li eaten library books, um, which is extra bad because they're library books. He has chewed up literally every single one of our flip-flops in our house. Um, he digs holes in our yard and he comes in with muddy paws. And then he got my husband's wallet and that was the clincher. And here's what happens when wit is bad. There is an immediate consequence, right? We take that book or the shoe that he chewed up and we show it to him and we say no, right? We try to train him. Um, but there's also a relational consequence that's happening here. When he's bad, we actually put him outside and we don't let him in until we've had time to clean up his mess or just to calm down, because sometimes it's really frustrating. And this makes him actually really sad. Suddenly, his desire to dig or to chew or to get my husband's wallet, it goes away. And he literally sits at the door and looks pretty pitiful and waits for us to let him back in. But here's what doesn't happen. When wit is bad, we don't deny him what he needs. We don't give him away. We don't kick him. We don't hurt him. He's still our dog. We still care for him and we love him. And honestly, when he's sitting outside looking so pitiful, we just feel really sad for him. We want him to obey. We want him to learn the rules of the house so that he can have full access to us and to our house. We want him to contribute, not detract from our family harmony. And so when he does obey a command, what do we do? We give him a treat, we reward him. We give him affection, we say, good boy, wit. We want him to flourish and be every bit of the golden doodle he was created to be. That, this means though that he has to learn how to live in our household. He can't just destroy whatever he wants whenever he wants it. Now I know that the analogy isn't perfect, 
but I've learned a little about the idea of the law from my dog. <laughs> the law is meant to be a guide, a roadmap, an arrow for pointing us to how we can truly flourish. When we delight in God's law, it means that we recognize that it provides us with a way forward to becoming actually more fully and completely who we were originally created to be. When we fall in line with God's law, we actually become more fully human. We get access to God and the peace and harmony that comes with that access. When we follow our own whims and desires, we reap consequences that result in a break of fellowship. Now hear me, our sin does not change God's love for us or our security as his child. In the same way that wits digging and chewing did not change the fact that he is still our dog. But our obedience or our sin, it does maybe uh, impact how we experience God's blessing for us. Remember, obedience in Scripture always brings blessing, and disobedience always brings consequences. Deuteronomy 6.24 says, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, and then it says, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. So the law, the family code of God is for our good always. God's law is not to kill our joy. It's not a power trip. It doesn't prevent us from being our true selves. On the contrary, when we follow God's law, we flourish. We find that we are actually more of who we were created to be. We grow more and more into the image of God, our original created purpose. So the blessed life or the good life is marked by not listening to the wicked, but delighting in God's law. And then third, and finally, the blessed life is a life that prospers. This is in verses, verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now, it's true um, that sometimes when we talk about prosperity or prospering, we get a little bit squirmy around this idea, and there, that's, there's reason for that. There has been a tradition in, throughout Christian, Christian history where this has been abused and misused. Um, and so we should push back in those places, but here it is in the text that a blessed life is a life that prospers. And so we have to wrestle with that and ask ourselves, what does that mean? And the, the psalmist provides some helpful insight into understanding prosperity by comparing the blessed man to a tree. As the psalmist describes this tree, he describes it in three specific ways. It's a strategically planted tree, it's a fruit-bearing tree, and it's a tree whose leaf does not wither. So the strategically planted tree, what does that mean? It's planted strategically because it's planted by streams of water. And I'm not an arborist, but I do know that trees need water to grow. And in an arid climate, like the Middle East where the original hearers would be hearing this, Sources of water were not necessarily abundant. It is therefore strategically planted by a place that brings life, which begs the question for us, if we want to live the good life, we have to take a look at where we're rooted. Where do we put down our roots? Are we planted in rich soil next to living water, or do we put down roots in places that can't sustain us? And what or who is this living water? Well, John, in John chapter 4, Jesus says he's the living water when he talks to a Samaritan woman. Secondly, though, the psalmist says that this tree yields its fruit in its season. And I love the specifics of this verse. The tree yields its fruit. If it is an orange tree, it will bear oranges. If it is a fig tree, it will bear figs. If it is a pear tree, it yields pears. 
That's how fruit trees work. You can't get figs from an apple tree. And Jesus picks up on this idea in Luke 6:43. He says, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And then Paul jumps onto this idea in Galatians 5 when he starts talking about the fruit of those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And we know that as the fruits of the spirit. So what about us? What kind of fruit are we bearing? What does our fruit tell us about where we have our roots? And then finally, this tree has non-withering leaves, which is again impressive if you consider the climate where it was plant- planted. The sun was intense in that region and the seasons, there were seasons of intense drought. So in other words, this tree doesn't escape from normal desert tree experiences. The sun beats down upon it, the drying desert wind blows on it. The point here is that even in the midst of those hardships, it doesn't wither. It withstands the heat of the day and the cold of the night and manages to bear fruit in its season. Why? Because it is planted by streams of water. So the good life then is like a tree planted by living water bearing fruit consistent with its soil and roots, withstanding the heat of the day and the seasons of drought. But again, we talked about the blessed man prospers. So I said earlier that this tree image helps us understand prosperity, and here's how. Think of a tree, a healthy, thriving, beautiful fruit tree. Just like the one that the psalmist described for us, it has leaves for shade and good fruit for eating. How beneficial, though, is that tree to itself? What defines whether a tree is prospering? By the shade it produces and the fruit it gives. A fruit tree is meant to be given to others. It does not grow simply for its own pleasure. This informs us of our understanding of prosperity. In wisdom literature, in the agrarian culture of the day, to be prosperous meant to have what you needed and then a little bit left over to share with your neighbors. Like a healthy tree, the blessed man or the good life is prosperous when it gives to others. Blessed to be a blessing. We see this language all throughout the Old Testament. So the good life is a life marked by generosity. This has always been the heart of God. All throughout scripture, God exhorts the material blessed to be generous. Deuteronomy 15 is a great example. He says in verse 10, You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. We see the connection there. Give generously because the Lord is providing for you. Do not give begrudgingly or with a tight fist. Why? In verse 15 it says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. Why do we give generously? Why is that a mark of the good life? Because God has been so generous to us, abundantly generous. Often when I stop to think about this, I realize that I operate from a place of scarcity more than abundance. 
I operate like the resources that I have been given um, are mine. They're not, they, they're things I've earned and not gifts that I've been given. And so I think that when I'm generous with these gifts that I'm going to run out. My, my middle child struggles with this at the dinner table, right? He wants to get that food fast before his siblings do because it's going to be gone. And I think I operate with my life sometimes like that. But listen to Psalm 24 verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Do we hear that? We own absolutely nothing. We own absolutely nothing. Everything is the earth. Everything in the earth is the Lord's. The fullness of the earth is his. Everything in it, everything we have is actually his. So how foolish I am when I think that I can hoard that for myself. So I think generosity is actually an antidote to self-sufficiency. When we give generously, we have to trust God to provide for us. When we are generous, we recognize that all we have is from God, not from ourselves. So to wrap up, let's remember this tree planted by streams of water. The tree demonstrating to us in the place where it's rooted and in the fruit that it bears and the stamina that it displays, that the good life is a life marked by generosity. And let's trace that tree imagery a little bit further in the biblical narrative until we come to another tree, the tree in Golgotha, the cross. It's actually through this tree, an incredible display of generosity, that we are given access again to the tree of life. Because here's the thing, Psalm 1 is talking about a blessed man and a blessed life, but there will only always ever be one blessed man, Jesus. And when he hung on the cross, he absorbed the full wrath of God in our place. He became a curse so that we could be blessed. The tree of judgment has become to us the tree of life so that when we are united to him, we can live the good life. Will you pray with me? Father God, thank you that your word is living and active, that it's always um, speaking to us even when our world is going crazy. I thank you so much for every single student and parent that you brought here this weekend. I pray for them as they're in the middle of important decisions and as they're in the middle of important decisions in a crazy time. Lord God, would you give them courage instead of fear? Would you give them joy instead of sorrow, Lord, in this decision? I pray that you would guide them clearly. Thank you for this place and for the way that you are at work here. Be with us as we go from this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace.